but we're going to be finding ourselves in the book of 2 Samuel. David is now uh, on the throne, and um, if you're it's like, hey, I haven't caught any of these messages, hey, you can catch them online. So before we get too far into this, two big things I'd like to, uh, to announce. Number one is the marriage retreat. In, it's in December. That is coming up quickly, and they will start selling out rather quickly. And so if you are at all interested, check out the link and all that type of stuff. I don't know any of the back channel stuff. I don't know all the ins and outs. I just know it's $365 a couple. Um, if you'd like to go a day early, I'm sure you can work that all out, what have you. But um, spots will start filling up rather quickly on that. I've, I just heard rumor that it's filling up quick. So there's that. The next one is, Mason, will you wave your hand in the air? He's waving way in the back. So Mason started a fellowship at 9 a.m. On, on Sunday mornings. And we'd love more people to come to that. But at the same time, November, the first week of November, is that the 4th? Something like, something like that. The first week of November, they are going to be starting a, a little study through the book of Daniel. And so if you're at all interested in that, you'll want to come and be a part of that. It's down this hall. The last room on the left is what we call the mountain room because there's a big mountain painted on the wall. So like we're, we think really deep around here. So that's called the mountain room. And so there's that. And then, of course, Dave Shelby also has his going on at uh, 9 a.m. And man, it's a joy to be a part of either one of them. So come be a part of that. All right. So those are the two main announcements I've got for you. I made mention last last week's message was a little bit deep. It was a little heavier uh, for sure. But we came to the conclusion that Jesus is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem one day. Amen. Y'all with me? That's the conclusion we came to the last week. Okay, the Bible says that Jesus is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and David is a picture of Jesus sitting on the throne in the kingdom of heaven, a literal physical kingdom, Jesus ruling and reigning. No doubt about it. But this week, I want to flip it a little bit because God also has a second kingdom. It's called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns, from heaven through the hearts and lives of men, does he sit on the throne of your life? And if I could just throw that question out, who will sit on your throne? And I would, I would maybe word it this way, does Jesus sit on the throne of your life in the kingdom of God right here, right now? And the answer to the question, I'm already going to give you the answer. You ready? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. He sits on the throne. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Where's Christ? He's seated on the right hand of God. That's where he is. So the answer to the question is, is Jesus ruling and reigning? Yes, he is. But he says, he sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on, not on the things on the earth. So the real question isn't, is he on the throne? The real question is, do you recognize his authority? He is on the throne. Are you submitted to him in that authority? Right? Kind of like the last two elections, different people say, well, it's not my president, not my president. No, he's your president. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's, how, that's how it works in this country. That, that's who your president is. Well, Jesus is on the throne. Is he, your, is he your king or not? Well, he's on the throne. But have you submitted to, to him as that authority? And what we find, I think, just in my own life, I know in the lives of others because I've done some biblical counseling, is we tend to go through waves in our lives, ebbs and flows of submission. Would you all agree with that? I, I'm going to need some, a whole lot of interaction. 
today. All right, so there's, there's ebbs and flows in our lives of submission. And so I've just learned when I counsel people who are struggling in their walk with God, I don't need to necessarily know all the details of what's going on in their life. The reason being because I've read my Bible. And because I've read my Bible, I already know what they're going through. And that's how whenever you get an opportunity to counsel others, you don't necessarily need to know all the struggles of their life because you know and just because you read the Bible the problems that they're going to go through. And so here's what I want to do. I want to take David's life because he is the rightful king. And what's crazy is he doesn't necessarily rule and reign over all the nation of Israel at the front of this book. So I want to take David's life and I want to superimpose our life over the top of it and see if we can get some congruency and, and maybe learn some things that will shed some light into our own lives. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of give an overview of the entire book and make some practical applications. And so Amen. A stark contrast, a stark contrast between last week's message and this week's message. It won't be near as deep, but I'm praying that it hits us deep in our hearts. That's what I've been praying all week long, that it will convict me, that it will convict you, and maybe, just maybe, be life-changing. Y'all ready? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ. I thank you, Lord, that we're able to get into your word. I am thankful, Lord, that we're able to study the word of God together. Lord, to be envisioned, um, to be convicted. Lord, to be equipped, to be edified and encouraged. But Lord, at the same time, Lord, I pray that uh, we are rebuked and Lord, that we are exhorted. So Lord, I pray that uh, you, would, you would speak, Lord, that your word would be, go forth in power and, and clarity. Lord, it, it would be your word that does the cutting. Lord, we need to hear from you. We ask all this in Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so if, you're, if you got a study sheet, if you have a bulletin on the back side of that is a study sheet, maybe that'll help you if you're into taking notes. You might wanna write a couple things down and chapters one through 10. So when you get to book of Second Samuel, David is now on the throne and chapters 1 to 10 is the, the blank I have for you is the king is established. The king is established. And these chapters picture for us a believer who's pursuing what God has called him or her to. So whatever it is that God has called you to, is letting, leading you to, chapters 1 through 10 are a great illustration or picture of, hey, I'm getting a hold of what God has a hold for me. All right, that's what chapters 1, and 10, 1 through 10 are, are a picture of. Um, and what, what, what's interesting is what God has called you to is the same thing that God has called me to, lead people to Christ and make disciples. But what God has also called you to may not be exactly what God's called me to. We were talking this morning, I love children, but I don't enjoy children's ministry. It ain't my thing. Is that okay? That's all right. I, I like hanging out with others. I, mean, I love high-fiving kids, and I love having a blast, and I love playing. But when it comes to day-in, day-out children's ministry, God did not give that gift to me. He's given that gift to others in the church, and I'm grateful, so grateful for that. So God may have called you to that, but God's not necessarily called me to that. And yet, what are we all doing? Leading people to Christ and making disciples. Some of them just happen to be younger than others. Does that make sense? So whatever God has called you to, that's what's happening in chapters 1 to 10 because God has ordained and God has set that David is going to rule and reign. All right, so Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, I've got three verses for you. Verse 12 says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, in other words, fully mature, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ, Jesus. So he says, listen, I want to get a hold of, 
of, the, of whatever God has for me because he's got a hold of me. Verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before. And then he says in verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What are you pursuing? What are you chasing after? God has something for you. God has a specific role. God has a specific function within this church. What is it that God has for you and are you chasing after it? Are you pursuing after it? And that's what I want to look at with David's life. So 2 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to skip over to chapter 2 and kind of get our running start here. We looked at a little bit of this last week. <clears throat> so 2 Samuel chapter 2, look at me in verse 3. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 3. And his men that were with him did David bring up every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying that the men of Jabesh-Gilead uh, were they that buried Saul. All right, so just real simple. If you are a student of the Bible, you're like, wait, they're just Judah? Where's the rest of the tribes? Well, only Judah's the one who anoints David as king. Now you have the remaining tribes. What's, what's up with that? Well, Judah gets anointed, uh, sorry, David gets anointed over the tribes of Judah, and they anoint him as king, and that's a picture of you and I getting saved. We're, we're, we're choosing Jesus for our eternity. It's a picture of our salvation. In other words, God rules over our heart, but there's a problem. The kingdom is divided. Because there's two different kings. There's two different kings happening here. Because there's a false king shows up, verse 8. There's a guy named Abner. Abner used to rule and reign, or used to help Saul. And, and so Abner says, well, we need to set up one of Saul's sons, verse 8. And Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Malan, that name, verse 9. I can't speak today. Verse 9, it says, And made him king over Gilead, and over the Asherites, and over Jezreel, and over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. So now you have two kings again. I thought we settled this last week. David's the rightful king, right? But here's, here's Abner saying, wait a second. Listen, I know that David's ruling over Judah. In other words, a picture of the heart. But you know as well as I do that when somebody gets saved, they know Christ, they meet Christ as Savior. He may be the Savior of their heart, but he's not necessarily the Lord of their life. Does that make sense? And that's the illustration here is, is a picture of a believer submitting and following the Lord with their life. And so a false king gets set up, and you see that in verses 8 to 11. It's a picture of being torn between allowing Jesus to rule or, or reign over my entire life. Is he going to be your Lord? That's the question. Maybe that's where some of you are. You are saved, and he rules over your heart. You know that you're going to spend eternity with Jesus, but your life doesn't reflect it. Is that you? Because you have a dual authority now. And you've got to get to the point where God's going to single you out. And you understand, no, he belongs on the throne. And what you're going to find is David eventually secures the kingdom, but it's a process. It doesn't just happen overnight. And that's exactly what happens for you and I. When we get saved, we are now, I, I call us bipolar schizophrenic, right? We're, we're spirit, but we're also flesh. 
right? In the spirit, I want to serve the Lord, but in my flesh, I want to serve myself, right? And so I'm, I'm torn between the two, and there's got to be a moment where I decide, no, Jesus is going to rule over my entire life, and there's a process that's called sanctification, and we help that through discipleship. So now Abner is set him up, and after a while, he realizes, this isn't going so well. David's a lot better king than Ishbosheth, and so Abner comes over to David. Check this out in chapter 3. Abner sneaks over to David and says, hey, uh, I, I realized something, verse, verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, whose is the land? saying also, make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee to bring about all Israel unto thee. So here's Abner, who set up the false king, and now realizes his mistake and says, I need to make sure that David is ruling not just over Judah, but over all of Israel. And so he says, hey, I, I'll make this happen. You make a league with me. I'll make sure that you are ruling reign. Verse 21, and Abner said unto David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel unto my Lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, that thou mayest reign over all that thine heart desireth. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And so David is now getting ready to be made king over Israel, but only after, only after Abner decides, I'm serving the wrong king. And maybe that's where you are today. You know you're saved, but your life doesn't reflect it. Are you tired of serving the wrong king? Have you, have you approached Jesus and said, hey, I need you to rule and reign. In fact, I'm going to make some decisions, and the way that's going to be accomplished is I'm going to remove the things in my life that are, that are ruling and reigning, where you are supposed to be ruling and reigning, because this is what happens. Go to chapter 4, Ishbosheth gets killed, verse 5. And the sons of Rimmon, chapter 4, verse 5. And the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, then Rechab the, the, and Benaiah, went and came unto the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat, and they smote him out of the fifth rib. And so Ishbosheth dies. Well, what does the Bible say? For Jesus is going to rule. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, we need to mortify those things on the earth. We need to put them to death. And so there has to be a moment of victory where you're tired of serving the wrong king and the wrong thing that you've been following has to die. All right, so chapter 5. So after Ishbosheth dies, Abner brings everybody together, and now David is made king over all the nation of Israel. Chapter 5, verse 3. And so the, all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. So now David is made king. In other words, now it's a picture of you making the decision, I've gone all in. I'm going to serve the Lord with my life. He's not just my Savior. He's now also my Lord. And what used to reign is no longer on the throne, and he solely rules and reigns over my life, over the kingdom of God, which dwells inside of me. Luke chapter 17, verse 21. Does this make sense? Y'all with me? So you see in the picture that happens. And then after he makes that decision, God says, okay, now, now I'm going to use you to your fullest potential. Chapter 7. Go to chapter 7. Because now David's wanting to build a temple and God says, nope, you're not going to build the temple because your hands are bloody. But here's what I am going to do. I'm going to use you for all of eternity, David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. 
And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Verse 14, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before, before thee. Keep reading. At thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. This is what's called the Davidic covenant. In other words, God says, okay, David, there's going to be somebody from your lineage, from your seed line, going to rule and reign over Israel all the way through. Then it comes all the past, all the way down to, to Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns victoriously. But understand, when you make the decision to put away the false gods, to put away the false idols, the, the, the false things that you worship and serve instead of the Lord, and you finally make a decision, Jesus Christ is not just my Savior, he's also my Lord. God says, I want to use you eternally. And are you pursuing after that? Because that's what's happening in chapters 1 to 10. So he's made king, and God solidifies it and says, okay, I'm going to use you. So things are going good in David's world. The kingdom is established, fully blessed, and maybe that's where you are. You're like, hey, man, I got saved, and man, I'm plugged in, and I'm, I'm getting used by the Lord, and, and I'm start, starting to see where I fit in and how God wants to use me for his kingdom, and I'm, I'm getting discipled. In fact, I'm starting to disciple others, and things are going really well for me. Okay, because chapters 11 and 12 are a turning point in this book. Chapters 11 and 12 are a turning point in this, in this book because chapters 11 and 12, the king falls. The king falls. Now, you can be doing really well. You can be serving the Lord with your life. And things are on a mountaintop. You are, you are just like, things are going really, really smooth. But understand this, when you get comfortable, and you start to get really complacent in your position and your place, that's where the temptation is to, to fall because sin enters in. Now, when you get to chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is a picture of a believer who gets comfortable in his position or her position and falls into sin, and sin brings the total destruction of the power of God in our lives. Amen? You know this to be true. Like, how did I get here? How did I fall so hard? I was doing so good. I was following the Lord in my life. And then all of a sudden, I got a little complacent. I let a little, little bit of sin creep in. And next thing I know, I'm flat on my face. And everything is absolutely falling apart. And chapter 11 is the fall. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he, what? Man, I'm, I'm doing good. Okay. Be careful. When everything's going really well in your life and you are exactly where you know God would have you to be, be careful that you're not standing in and on your own strength because you are guaranteed to fall if you do that. Now, if you do fall, you have two options. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. Proverbs 24, verse 16. I think that's supposed to be... That's supposed to be verse 16. Anyways, let me just read it to you. For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. You, hear this? you ever heard that verse, verse before? You might want to write that reference down. I, I put it up here wrong. For a just man falleth seven times. You're like, 
Yeah, I'm like on number 12. Okay, you get, you get the idea. The just man follows seven times and riseth up again. That's option A. Option A is I fell, it's time to get up and let's move forward. Here's option B. Option B is, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Those are your options. So you take heed that you stand, lest you fall. Oh, well, I fell. Okay, you have a choice. Get up or keep falling. Those are your two choices. David fell, and he fell hard, and he kept falling. And because he kept falling, it caused a whole lot of heartache. And maybe that's where you are right now. You're like, I, I feel like I'm falling. Okay, make the right choice here. But what we're going to look here in verses 11 12, here's what happens if you choose option B. Here's the first point I want you to get. You can choose to battle or you can choose to coast. You can choose to battle or you can choose to coast. You need to understand that if you serve the Lord with your life, there's going to be a constant battle you're going to have to face. Every once in a while, God's going to give you moments of peace. Every once in a while, God's going to give you a little bit of respite. But just know this, there's always going to be a battle. I say it this way, and I mean it, and I say it all the time, and I don't care if you get tired of hearing it. You're on your way into a trial, in the midst of a trial, or on your way out of one. Every one of us in this room, you're on your way into a trial, in the midst of one, or on your way out of one. Now, are you going to keep get? Are you going to get up? That's how you get out. Or are you going to just keep falling? No wonder your trial's been lasting for years and years. Let's move forward. Okay, well that that sounds all well and lovely, but here's what here's how you began to fall. You started coasting instead of stepping up to the plate. And here's what I mean by that. Chapter eleven, verse one. And it came to pass. After the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to what, to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. That's called foreshadowing. You know, this isn't going to go well, right? So what's David doing? He's letting other people fight. He's letting other people do ministry. He's letting other people do the thing. But he's stepping out and says, you know what? I'm just going to coast for a little bit. And there's a big difference between resting and coasting. Chuck and I were just talking about that just before service. There's a big difference between coasting and resting. He's not resting. He's coasting. Letting other people engage in the fight, letting other people get involved in ministry, and he is taking a step back. Now, I'm going to propose to you, he planned this. This is a plan. This, isn't, this didn't just happen. He planned this, verse 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him. And he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I'm a child. Uh-oh. That went really quickly, didn't it? What happens? Here's a guy who chose to coast. Instead of setting up in the battle, he shouldn't be there in the first place, and yet he's, 
He's hanging out on the roof. Why is he hanging out on the roof? I'm going to submit to you. This isn't the first time David has seen Bathsheba. That's what I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to submit to you that he's seen her before. He's seen women bathing before. Of course, he's got the highest roof in the land. Why? Because you want the, it's tactical, right? You, you don't want to be other people looking down on the king. So the king's going to look over and he sees this woman bathing and he's like, okay, I got a plan. I'm going to send accountability out. So he waits and he makes sure that he removes himself from accountability. There is no Joab. There is nobody else to speak into him. There's nobody else around him. They're all off fighting battle and he isolates himself and removes himself from having accountability. Y'all with me? But I I would assume a lot of the men in the room are with me on this. So he's avoiding a battle, but he finds himself in a major battle at home. He's removed himself from accountability. He's known, he, he understands, wait, if nobody else is around and at night I can pop out and see what I can see and then get what I want because I'm the king, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Right? And because he's the king, he gets what he wants. He inquires. And after finding out, is this not the wife of Uriah? He knows who Uriah is. He's like, like one of his mighty men. You can read about that in chapter 24. He's one of the mighty men of David. He knows who it is. And after even hearing that, he doesn't go hands off. He says, ain't nobody looking. Who's going to keep her away from me? And so she comes. He has his way. She ends up pregnant. He gets the news. Went from everything going really well to everything going really bad in a short amount of time. You ever fallen on the ice? That never happens slowly, does it? It like happens quick. <laughs> you just fall down. There's, there's no, I mean, it just happens quick. And sure enough, that's what happened here. What happened? Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Romans chapter 13, verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You see, you need to understand something. Your flesh, your, your flesh, your flesh has lust that it wants to fulfill. And you got to be making sure that David is in his rightful place on the throne and make not provision for the flesh. And sure enough, that's what happens. All right, so what happens? Okay, he fell. Remember option A, get up. Admit it. Let's move forward. Let's, let's deal with this thing. Hey, get your eye in here. We need to have a chat. Hey, I slept with your, I slept with your lady. Let's deal with this thing. Nope, he doesn't do that. He takes option B. He falls even into further mischief. And here's the next point. I can choose to repent or I can choose to cover things up. And what happens when you sin? What happens when you start to get away from the Lord? You start to play cover up, don't we? Verse 6. And and David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah the Hittite to David. You would think, oh man, he's doing what's right. Hey, you better call Uriah. But David has a plan. I'm going to get Uriah back. I'm going to act like I just want to report from the battlefield. I'm going to get him really drunk. I'm going to send him home. I'm going to get him to hang out with his lady, and everybody's going to do the math, and she's going to be pregnant. Everybody's going to assume it's Uriah's kid. So instead of dealing with it, he plays the cover-up game. And Uriah has more character than him. Uriah is a man of, of character. He says, listen, my people are out on the battlefield. I'm not going into my wife. I'm not going to be hanging out with my wife while everybody's out on the battlefield, which ties a lot in with what we talked about in Mason's Fellowship this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's a job to be done. And so he was not going to be deceived by that. Verse 14, and it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. 
So here's what David writes. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. So, Uriah, so David's like, okay, if he's not going to go do what I need him to do to cover up my sin, I'm going to make sure he dies so the cover-up can keep going. So he writes a letter with new orders, and Uriah's got new orders to take to Joab. He just doesn't understand that those, those orders are written for his death. So Joab gets the letter, puts him in the hottest battle. Uriah dies. David gets the news, moves Bathsheba in, and everything's good. Everything's good. No, no, everything's not good. It's an absolute wreck. All right, go to chapter 12, because Nathan the prophet shows up and comes to David and starts having a conversation with him and says, hey, I got to tell you a story about a guy who was super rich. He had a lot of sheep, a lot of lambs. His guest came in, and, and uh, he stole the, the poor neighbor's sheep because he didn't want to kill his own, and and, and, fed the, and fed the guest. And David's like, I can't believe he did that. Kill that guy and then make him restore fourfold. And then Nathan gets in, da- in David's face and says, you the man, Dave. You're the man. Next point I have for you is I, I can choose to repent or I can choose to condemn others who do the same. You ever notice that when somebody you love or maybe yourself are feeling guilty or feeling convicted, over something, that you tend to lash out at people who are doing the same things that you're guilty of? You ever notice that? Pay attention to the ones who's squawking the most about a certain thing because they're usually the ones who's struggling with the same thing. And David, instead of confessing, instead of repenting, he chooses to condemn others who are doing the same thing that he's doing. Look at verse 5, chapter 12, verse 5. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had not pity. So, hey, I can't believe he just did that. What does Nathan say? Verse 7. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel and delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Verse 9, wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. You committed adultery and you committed murder to cover up your sin. And now you're condemning, you're upset with a falsified story of a man who stole, stole a lamb. No, you're, you're lashing out. And I'll tell you what, if you're struggling with something and instead of repenting, you're going to start condemning others who are doing the same thing as you. Be careful. Be careful because even then, he still continues to fall into mischief. Stay in chapter 12, look at verse 13. And so verse 13 says, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Yeah, you have. You confessed it. But confession is not repentance, is it? Is it? He said, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away the sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed that thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And God says, Okay, you got Bathsheba pregnant. You killed, um, you killed her husband. And now this baby's going to be born, and the judgment is that that child's going to die. Here's the next point. You've got to get this. You've got to get this. I can choose to repent, or I can beg God to take away the consequences of sin. And what does David do? 
He begins to fast. And he begins to plead with God. Not over his sin. Please do not kill my son. Please do not kill this child. Verse 16. And David therefore besought God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And I would say that's a good thing to pray for your kid, wouldn't you? I mean, it's a good thing until you understand what's really happening. He's not asking God for forgiveness for himself. He's not repentant. He doesn't like the consequence of his sin. And he's whining to God, I can't believe I'm having to go through all this. No, David, those are the consequences of your sin. You chose this, verse 19. And when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants, check this out, verse 21, then said his servants unto him, what thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore shall I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now there's a whole lot going on there. But I just want you to understand and, and see that as soon as David was resigned to the fact that the consequences were going to be the same, no matter what, he washed and he ate and he continued just as things were. There's a, there's a danger that what we call begging God to deal with our consequences of sin, and we call that repentance. It's not repentance. He doesn't like what he's gone through. And when he finally resigns to the fact that this is how it is, it is what it is, I'm just going to move on with my life. Might as well put a best, good face on. Let's just go. That's sad. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Now, we tend to look at this passage in a very negative light. It's often, re, it's often quoted in a negative light. You reap what you sow, right? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Truth. Verse 8, you have a choice, though. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption, a la David, right? But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You reap what you sow. Are you sowing death or are you sowing life in your life? Which is it? Because God's not going to be mocked. He doesn't play the game. Consequences are what the consequences are. All right. So would you agree that that's a turning point in the book? Everything's going well for David. He's on the throne. Great. It falls. And he falls into mischief and it gets worse. And what you find in chapters 13 to 19 now is the kingdom suffers the fallout of sin. That's the next point. Is the kingdom now suffers the fallout of sin because how do we know? How do we know that David was not repentant? Because it doesn't change. It just gets worse, man. Things don't get any better. He's still on the run. This is a picture of a believer who doesn't deal with his sin or her sin. 
It demonstrates what sin can do in your life and when it takes the great things of God and it just absolutely destroys them. Because what you find in chapter 13, and we don't have time to dive too much into this, David has a son named Amnon. Amnon has a stepsister. Yes, this is gross. Yes, it's weird. But he falls in love with the stepsis. And he wants his stepsister. Well, the stepsister's like, ew, no. <laughs> no. Amnon comes up with a plan and, and rapes her. Chapter 13, verse 11. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, so he comes up with this plan, I'm going to fake sick and, and ask that Tamar would come and, and, and nurse me to health. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come, lie with me, my, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. What do you see is you begin to see sexual sin now begin to take precedent. And instead, now he rapes his sister, and David does nothing about it. It breaks his heart. But he doesn't confront it. Verse 14, Howbeit, he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her, then Amnon hated her exceedingly. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Breaks my heart. So here's this woman who gets treated absolutely poorly. David does nothing to deal with it. Absalom is Tamar's sister. Absalom waits two full years waiting on dad to do something. But Absalom waits on dad, and dad never does anything. And here's what happens. When you continue in your sin, you notice it tends to flesh out itself in a very sexual way, and, 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 then, and then it takes it the next step further where now it creates problems within the family, creates family problems. And now Absalom has convinced himself, he understands, wait a second, my dad apparently can't lead. If he can't lead his home, he can't lead a kingdom. I think the Bible would agree with that. Timothy says that. Okay, well, that's interesting. So now Absalom comes to this conclusion, and skip over here to, um, to uh, chapter 13, verse 28. Because Absalom says, fine, if dad's not going to do anything, I'm going to do something. Now Absalom had commanded his servant, saying, Mark ye now where Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him, fear not. Have not I commanded you, be courageous and valiant. So now Absalom kills Amnon. So now you have family drama, you got a brother taken out a brother. You got one brother raping a sister. And it's, it's just absolute chaos. And everything was going well. But David coasted. And who pays the price? The kingdom does. And I'm telling you, when you choose to coast and you choose not to deal with your sin, it will cause a fallout of sin that spirals so fast and out of control. Things happen that you never dreamt would ever happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And so that breaks David's heart, but even then he does nothing about it. And so Absalom begins to steal the hearts of the people. Go to chapter 15, verse 4. And Absalom said, moreover, oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause may come unto me, and, and I would do him justice. Apparently my dad won't, so I'll do it. Verse 5. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand, and he took him and, and kissed him. So now he's stealing the hearts of the people. Verse 6, And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of all the men of Israel. Listen, 
you may have gone through a moment in your life where you say, okay, I'm saved, I'm getting discipled, I'm serving the Lord, and, and I'm putting away the Ishbosheth. I've I put away the things of my life so that Jesus can rule and reign in my life, and you then you serve the Lord with your life, and then all of a sudden you started coasting because you coasted, you fall into sin, and instead of rising up, you went down further into mischief, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and then something else shows up in your life, something that's near and dear to you, it begins to rule, it begins to steal the hearts of the people, it begins to steal your heart. And next thing you know, you're following after it instead of following after the Lord. And so Absalom now is taking over and it breaks David's heart to the point that now David has to flee. He goes on the run. Chapter 15, verse 13. And there came thither a messenger to David saying, that the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all the servants that were with him in, at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to de depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. So now he's running from his own son. Have you ever noticed that when somebody is in deep sin, not only because they've isolated themselves from accountability, now they're living on the run. Why? Because they're trying to appease and stay afloat. They just want to stay alive. They're just trying to appease everybody. They're always on the run. You can't ever mark them. You can't ever find them. They're always on the run. Chapter 18. This goes on for some time. You get all the way over here to chapter 18, and it comes to a head. David has to deal with this. So now they're getting ready to go to battle. And David's like, okay, we got to deal with this. I got to handle this. I got to get right. He's starting to make right decisions, but he wants to get right, but not at the expense of his son. And so in chapter 18, verse 5, he gives orders. In verse 5, he says, And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Etai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's charge concerning Absalom. So the king says, Okay, go get victory, but do not kill. Do not hinder. Do not hurt my son. Please don't do that. He wants to get right, but not at the expense of the kid. And I think, there's, I think there's honor in that, right? But Joab. Joab is hot. He is mad. He can't stand Absalom. Well, Absalom is like the Fabio of the day. Absalom had long, flowy hair. And so they're in this battle. They're in this, in this war in chapter 18, chapter 18, verse 9. And Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode upon a mule. And the mule went under the thick boughs of an oak, great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth. Interesting phrase. And the mule that was under him went away. So you get the idea, right? You've seen it in every comedy skits. You've seen it every, you've seen it a lot. Guy's riding his mule, going into victory, and all of a sudden his hair gets caught in the trees, and he's just hanging there. Mule's out from underneath him. He's like, stuck, like Chuck. What are you going to do? I'm stuck. And somebody, somebody comes up to the job and says, hey, I saw Absalom hanging from a tree by his hair, his beautiful locks of hair. It pays to be bald, by the way. Just saying, just saying. Beautiful locks, he's floating, he's bobbing. And Joab's like, why didn't you kill him? Like, because we heard the king, the, the king said not to hurt him. And Joab grabs 10 men. Absalom is a picture of the Antichrist and 10 surround him, just like the 10 kings are going to destroy the Antichrist. We don't have time to get into all that. Go study that out for yourself. But look at verse 14. Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the yoke. And 10 young men that bare Joab's armor compassed and smote Absalom and slew him. Victory! Wrong. 
David didn't get the victory. Joab ensured that David got the victory. Now hear this. You might be sitting here today thinking, I know somebody in this room that needs to hear this. I know somebody who's not in this room who absolutely needs to hear this. Quit running. Submit to the Lord. Get up and walk right. Okay. Joab kills Absalom. And he is a picture of someone who damages you because they're forcing you to do things their way. In other words, Joab desperately wants David to deal with this issue so much that Joab forces the hand and causes great damage, causes great hurt. Be careful that you don't want something more than somebody else wants it because you're going to cause great damage and great hurt. Amen? Doesn't mean you stop praying, you keep loving, you do all those things. But you are not the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? You are not the Holy Spirit. Let God do his work. Sick Jesus on him. But do not be a Joab where you're trying to be the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life and you force them and you drag them into victory. The Joab ends up losing his life over this thing. And David and Joab are never right after that ever again. Be careful. Be careful. All right. This is going to go quick, I promise. This will go quick. Chapters 20 to 24. Chapters 20 to 24. The king gets restored. I mean, that would be sad. We, we can't end. We can't end on that note, can we? No, the king gets restored. This is, this is great news. Because after the victory, after he's dealt with Joab and he handles all this stuff, this is a picture of now a believer who chooses to get right with the Lord. And what you find in chapter 20, go to chapter 20 for a moment. Chapter 20, verse 3. He's restored in location. Restored in location. So if you want to get restored, you want to get right in your, in your life, then that's the next point. You've got to get restored in location. He goes back to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel, chapter 20, verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, which he had left to keep the house, and put them in ward, and fed them, but went not in unto them, so they were shut up in the day of their death, living in widowhood. What happens? He goes back to Jerusalem. And if you want to get right back to where God would have you to be, get back in the right location. Whether that's the body of Christ. Maybe you've separated yourself from the body of Christ. Maybe it's a close relationship. Whatever it might be, you got to get back to where you got off track. He went fleeing, and now he's back. Restore your location. The next thing, get restored in prayer. Get restored in prayer. Because one thing we did not talk about is David quit talking to the Lord. When you get to chapter 21, verse 1. Chapter 21, verse 1. And there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. Now David is now starting to talk to God again. He's actually engaging in prayer again. This is the first time in a long time he begins to pray. Be restored in praise. Look at chapter 22. Be restored in praise. Because what you find in chapter 22 is David writes a song. He writes a song to the Lord. In fact, you can read this same song in Psalm 18. Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 are the same passages. David writes a song. He writes a song of praise. Verse 1, And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock 
In him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. He just goes on and on and on. You ever notice that when you start to get separated from the Lord, you have a hard time praising? Because it's impossible to praise the Lord in the flesh. It's not possible. What's amazing is God begins to rework in your life and, and draw you back. Isn't it amazing that there's just an old song that comes on the radio or just an old song that comes up in your heart and you just, you just sing it back to the Lord? Renew, restore your, your praise. Chapter 23, restore, be restored in your perspective. Be restored in your perspective because now David begins to remember how God has used him. Verse 1, chapter 23, verse 1. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man whom raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. There was a moment where I knew God was using me and speaking through me. Verse 3, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruled over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. He's taking him back to where he got set on the throne. He's taking him back to moments where he wrote the songs of praise to the Lord, where he's speaking the, the wisdom of God. He renews his perspective, and he gets right back to what God has said. I'm telling you, if you want to get right with the Lord, you want to get restored, you got to come back to the book. you got to come back to the book. And then lastly, be restored in worship. Go to 2 Samuel 24. Be restored in worship. So David numbers the people when he's not supposed to. Judgment goes through the land, and he wants to stop this, and so he begins to make a sacrifice to the Lord. In chapter 24, verse 18, it says, And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up. Rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. He's also called Ornan in Second Chronicles, in Second Chronicles, verse nineteen. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming out toward him. And Arana went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arana said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the, flesh, the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arana said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up that which seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing instruments and other instruments of the oxen for wood. Man, I love Arana's heart. Arana's like, you want to get your worship on? I'm going to help supply it. Here's the land. Here's the wood. Here's the oxen. I'll give up my whole business for you, the king. Would you please do this? Great heart of worship. I love that. But notice what David says, verse 24. And the king said unto Arana, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. What happens? He's restored in worship. David sacrifices to the Lord. Well, what does that matter? Why is that so important? Let me remind you of Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2 with Abraham and with Isaac. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall tell thee of. That's the same piece of property. 
the very place that David is sacrificing is the very place that Isaac was to be slain. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon, here's a reference, cross-reference. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Where are they fighting over right now? They're worried about that same piece of land today. Alaska storm. What's it about? The Temple Mount. The same piece of property that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 22. The same piece of property that is purchased by a king to set up an altar or to set up a temple. The same piece of property that Solomon builds that temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Same exact place. Chapter 22 of Genesis, we're dealing with the seed line. There's a line of the seed. It's going to go through Isaac because in Isaac shall thy seed be called. In, in first Samuel, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 24, now it's about the land where that seed is going to rule and reign. And it's this piece of property that David sacrifices on that Jesus Christ is going to land on the Mount of Olives, walk through the East Gate, and walk to this same piece of property. The very place that David sacrificed, he's going to sit down. He's going to rule, and he's going to reign. Praise the Lord for that. It's a place of sacrifice, but let me remind you, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to be a living sacrifice to God. You do that by saying, God's going to use me because he used his holy seed to lead me to Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, is a walk in love as Christ also loved us and hath given to himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling Savior. We're to follow Christ just like Christ gave himself. We're to give ourselves. So what a book. What a book. I guarantee, I guarantee that something in that message spoke to you. You were in one of those places. You're growing and you're getting to the point where he's not just your savior, but he's also your Lord. Maybe you're there. I made that decision. Yes, I'm discipled and plugged into the ministry. Be careful that you do not coast. Engage in the battle. There's always a battle to be fought. Ephesians chapter 6, stand and, and just having done all, stand and watch God go to work. But if you don't, if you take it and you think you're standing, you're going to fall. You have a choice. Get up and do it in repentance or fall into mischief, and it will destroy not just you but those around you. It's going to hinder your family. It's going to hinder everything. And at the end, you're going to be walking with a limp, man. And you can still get right with the Lord. Amen, church? You can still be restored. And it's going to start by you saying, okay, Lord, you need to hear my voice. I stopped talking to you. I need to get back where I got off track. I need to get back in your word. I need to get some renewed perspective. I need to get my, my praise back. And I need to become that sacrifice where God can use me right here, right now, but also where I get to rule and reign with him in the future. Man, what a choice you have. Let's stand together. Let's take a few moments. Let's deal with the Lord. We're working on towards getting a song here toward the end so you can respond to the Lord. But let's just take a few moments. Let's do some business with the Lord. Maybe you're tired of running. I'd say stop. Stop running right here, right now. Make this the moment. 